Let's read the scripture together. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Ephesians 1.15 For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. So if you have been with us the last few weeks, we are be, uh, closing our season here. This is technically not uh, the outside of Easter, and yet it is a distinct event. It is the capstone, if you will, of this season that we call Easter. If you aren't from a church or a tradition that discusses the things of the faith in seasons, you may have thought Easter was months ago. But at this point, uh, I would, would encourage you to begin to think about how Christmas is a season, culturally. 
It usually takes place before Christmas, the day, but uh, actually in the case of the way that the church celebrates it, the Christmas is actually usually 12 full days. That's where the song, the 12 days of Christmas comes from. Likewise, Easter is an extended season. It is more than just one or, or two moments of special songs about the resurrection or special emphasis of the resurrection. It actually is the entire, uh, the entire season is given to understand what Christ did in the resurrection and to understand his teaching that he gave to the disciples before his ascension. And so today, I want to look at the ascension as the final culmination of everything that Christ was doing in the resurrection and post-resurrection. That is, after he defeated death, he then made that defeat plain, and then all of those implications and applications were then being told to the disciples. They were specifically given uh, commandments and instructions on how to spread this message through the Mediterranean region and even unto the end of the earth. And so we see this play out, especially today. Um, but I want to look particularly at this in five uh, heads, if you will, or five, five themes. I want to look first as Christ being the subject of the scriptures. That is, his ministry and person are told forth in the Old Testament scriptures in such plain and clear ways so as to still require the Holy Spirit, but to be the chief teaching that the apostles would carry to the nations. It is not the case that the apostles created a separate doctrine of Christ. Their, their understanding of who Jesus was was rooted primarily in the Old Testament scriptures as Jesus empowered them to understand. We're going to see how that also becomes the foundation for their teaching in the New Testament. The New Testament, as we'll see, is the recording of the apostolic reading of the Old Testament and how they saw Christ uh, more clearly now having him been made manifest in the flesh, having suffered and raised from the dead and now ascended to the Father. And so Christ being the subject of the scriptures, we're going to move over to the Lord's commissioning that just as he says he was told forth in the scriptures, so also he says the gospel will go forth. And all of that is promised and rooted in the exact same element, namely the scriptures itself. The Lord commissions the disciples and then he promises the Holy Spirit, adding his promise to what he calls the promise of the Father we're going to see how this is not just a proof of our God being Trinity, that is Father, Son, and Spirit, but it is actually the fact that it is a proof of Christ's divinity and authority that he has as he is beginning to wield that authority. If you're familiar with the Great Commission, you might remember it be, begins with a statement, because I have all authority, go therefore. And so we're going to see how that authority is being made manifest in his commission and in his promising. We're going to look at Christ, therefore, as the head of a Jew and Gentile people made one. Not, not any longer two, but one new man united in Christ, replacing the two. And interestingly enough, it actually begins not in Paul's letter, but it actually will begin in our reading today what the disciples do after 
hearing Christ's commandments, what they do is particularly important. Also, that is going to be seen as an evidence of Christ's divinity, how they worship him. Then we're going to see Christ as the forerunner and mediator of the saints. We'll define what those mean, but just for, for your, uh, if you're taking notes or whatever, you just need to know those two portions of his ministry in person are somewhat linked. That Christ goes before us, and he also mediates God to us and mediates us to God, that he is the avenue through which we can come to God, and his mediatorial office is persisting even to this moment. We're going to look at what all that means and what all that implies. And then finally, we're going to look at Christ over all and how we, the church, are part of his kingdom and part of his exercise of dominion and authority. And so uh, just at the onset, I, I just want to encourage you that the ascension is perhaps the most neglected uh, event of the life of Christ as it's celebrated in the church today. It is not always the case. It has not been the case. There are other branches of the church or portions of the church which give due import to the ascension, give due, uh, due honor to the event, commemorate it rightly. But it is the case today, especially in the general evangelical church, or you might think of just general Protestantism in America, we do not understand the great importance of the ascension. So if you've been here at this church, this is now the fourth year of our use of the church calendar, and we have seen various aspects of the importance of the ascension year over year. But here I want to actually summarize most of them, and, and I want to emphasize that his headship over the church is not only beautiful in its own right, but it should be the source of all of our hope for the future, both personally and for the future of the world. That is my chief aim, is to show you that because Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of power and has begun to rule and reign, he will continue to rule and reign, not just in a mystical sense through his spirit, but through his people. And that that reign will continue forever until the last day when everything is subjected to the Father, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ will not take one step off of his throne until he is completely done executing the redemptive plan of God. That is what Christ is going to do. That's where he's going when he ascends to the Father. And so it is, it is not just a doctrine which is a historical event. That historical event of his ascension 2,000 years ago has massive implications for how we understand history, but also how we understand the future and what we think about the future and where we are personally going and where this is all going. It's not enough to understand the fact of the ascension. You must press out what it means today, both for you and for the, the world. Otherwise, you will be extremely susceptible to negative eschatologies, negative theories about the future. It is not possible that Christ's reign will be imperfect. His kingdom is perfect just as he is perfect. He perfectly executes his will through his spirit in the church and through the church to the world around them. And that is exactly what I, what I hope to show you today through these events. So first, Luke closes his gospel in Luke 24 with two events highlighting the importance of Christ in the scriptures. 
First is the road to Emmaus, which we looked at just a few weeks ago in brief, where he talks to these two disciples as they're leaving Jerusalem, and they give an evidence that they have lost all hope. They said, if you remember, but we had hoped that he was the one. And they, at that point, demonstrated that they were no longer hoping. He then says to them something that's vitally important, something that replays here in Luke 24 in today's reading. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the scriptures concerning Christ, how he must first suffer and then enter into his glory. And so Jesus is rebuking them, not for a failure to be positive or to have some sort of general uh, enthusiasm post-crucifixion. He rebukes them because they let that circumstance of the crucifixion overshadow what they should have seen clearly through the scriptures, that they should have fully expected Jesus to have been crucified. They took it as the final nail in the coffin as to whether Jesus really was the Messiah or not. And he turns it around and says, actually, this proves that I was the Messiah. And then he begins to unpack the scriptures to them. It says in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he then explained to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself. This is exactly what takes place here in Luke 24 as well. The first thing to see here is the scriptures are not first and foremost concerning us. People come to the Bible and they replace the words, the Holy Bible with life manual or seven steps or 38 steps to a better marriage or what have you. The scriptures are not primarily a self-help book. There is wisdom and glory in the scriptures. If you read the book of Proverbs and you follow the In faith, by the grace of God, you take hold of the scriptures, you follow the readings of Proverbs, you will become a wise person. The word of the Lord will have its effect. However, that does not happen outside of the grace of God and outside of the illumination of the Spirit. Nevertheless, it's not primarily to help you live your life. That is the secondary, that's the effect. The, The first and foremost chief purpose of the scriptures was given by God to be a historic record of his covenantal dealings with his people, showing that he will be faithful and has been faithful, but also that all those covenantal dealings were simply setting up a scenario that the the New Testament calls the fullness of times, that at the fullness of time, God sent his son. That is the whole point of the Old Testament scriptures. First and foremost, it is about Christ. We, a few months ago, I, I made a joke, you know, th- there used to be this song, you're so vain, you think this song is about you, right? And we saw that that was kind of a, a little play into that the, the, the Psalms are not written for devotional use, they're written to show us Christ. Likewise, if we approach this book thinking this is really about how I should live my life better, we're going to miss the major import and, and focus and subject of the scriptures. This book is not about us. This book is about Christ. And, and therefore, through what Christ has done, it then becomes about, what, uh, about us, in a sense. It, it, it becomes uh, a message of what we must do in response to Christ. But it is not primarily and chiefly about how we ought to live our lives. It primarily and chiefly is about showing forth and telling forth Jesus Christ and his kingdom. 
Therefore, in each chapter of the Old Testament, whether it's history, whether it's the writings, whether it's the chronicles of the kings, whether it's Proverbs, whether it's the Psalms, each chapter puts forth the glory of Jesus Christ, although in a veiled way. In 1 Peter 1, 10 through 13, Peter tells his audience that the prophets who came of old made diligent search and inquiry. And he's not saying that they were kind of navel-gazing or staring up into the spirit. He says that the prophets of old, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, these people were searching and inquiring in the scriptures which had come before them. And when you read the prophets in light of even the earlier scriptures before them, you see they're making complete use of the Old Testament, even while they're writing the Old Testament. Um, I'm equivocating there, but the point is that these prophets of old did not simply stare off into the clouds hoping the Spirit would come by and whisper. They made diligent search and inquiry in the Scriptures before them. And then Peter goes on to say, and he says, therefore set your mind more fully on the salvation to come, or which is to be revealed. What is he saying? He's saying, if, if you understand what I'm saying, that even the prophets read the Scriptures in order to search for Christ, you yourself have to do the same thing. You have to pick up the mantle of the prophets and the apostles and look for Christ in every place. So in verse 45, Jesus does something wonderfully beautiful to the disciples. It says in Luke 24, 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I love this verse because it's so mysterious. What did he do? Did he like go and touch their heads? And yes. Duck, duck, apostle. Duck, duck, <laughs> apostle. It's, it's, it's kind of like one of those moments, you know, and if you've ever seen The Matrix, I love The Matrix. I'm okay with the violence in The Matrix. It's, it's all computer generated. So the point is that in, in, in The Matrix, you have this wonderful moment where Neo knows nothing about The Matrix and then through some magical computer programming, whatever, he then knows Kung Fu, right? That great moment. I know Kung Fu. What Jesus is doing for the disciples is he's bringing them into a world that they have no access to before this. Christ is not just a human being. He is God. And as such, he does something in the spirit that changes their destiny forever. He anoints them to understand the word. This is what Paul is talking about. I think I'm going to refer to this right here in 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18. Paul is talking about the fact that in the synagogues of his day, they still read Moses, but whenever they read Moses, the veil is over them. And that in turning to Christ, the veil is taken away. I think that's what Jesus was doing. He was, as God, spiritually transacting something to them so that they could read the scriptures. And woe are we if we approach the scriptures without having been touched by the Lord. So as the apostles proclaim in every nation, they must know those things which are already being spoken of. In Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, there's one verse which gives us some history about what had been taking place in the Mediterranean region. Before the advent of Christ, there had been disciples and apostles who had begun to go out throughout the regions and they had begun to speak the law of Moses to the surrounding cultures. We call these people Hellenized Jews. The, the Hellenistic period is a descriptor of that time period in Greek antiquity. 
Greek Hellenism was a cultural experience, and Hellenism had such a wonderful balance of a little bit of love for rationality and a little bit of love for law that the law of God found great acceptance in the Greek world. And so in Acts 15, they say this phrase, we don't have need to tell them anything further, for in every place Moses is taught. They don't mean that they're like teaching them the story of Moses, although they did that. They mean Moses' writings are being taught. And so God had set it up, we mentioned the fullness of times, God had set it up in such a way that these people had already begun to establish synagogues outside of the land of Israel. This is why the gospel is able to make such great progress. Of course, being in the sovereignty of God and anointed with the Spirit is very helpful as well, but most of the Greek culture around them had some familiarity with Yahweh and, what, and his dealings with his people. And because that was the cultural understanding of the people of the time, Jesus made sure that the apostles were able to preach Christ from those scriptures because the people they were going to had some familiarity with those scriptures already. That is the whole point of using Christ in the Old Testament is to show that God is not doing a brand new thing. He is just unfolding the plan as it always was. This happened exactly as Jesus said it would. If we go back in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's the historical event to Christ as he's speaking in that moment. And then verse 47, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Jesus is there for prophesying. He's foretelling what's going to take place, but he's not doing it by a brand new revelation of the spirit. He's saying, as verse 45 says, that this was written in the scriptures. It's helpful to remember from time to time that the word scriptures is actually just the word writings. It was written, thus it is written. He's saying, it's in the Bible somewhere. The point is, he's saying that this has happened. I, the Christ, have suffered, I have been raised, and just as this took place, therefore, because A and B, therefore C. He's saying, I've suffered, I've died, I've been raised, therefore I know for certain, and you should bank on it, the gospel will go to every nation. As Christ is the subject of Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament, he also, therefore, is the subject of the writings of the apostles. The apostles made diligent search and inquiry into the Old Testament, having been unleashed or having been, um, excuse me, uh, introduced to the, the correct reading of the scriptures by Christ in this very moment. They make a great improvement upon their opportunity. They search the scriptures, they teach from the scriptures, and then they record their reading of the Old Testament in the New Testament as an example for us. When we go through the New Testament writers, we have to know that this is one of their chief goals. One of their chief goals is to say in their writings, how did Jesus Christ fulfill everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament? How is he the fulfillment of all of the great various threads of promise? How did he do it? That is exactly what they're trying to put forth in their epistles. They, therefore, the apostles, are likewise inspired by the Spirit to give additional teachings, not showing brand new things, but rather showing exactly how Christ is 
seen in the scriptures. So from this understanding, having equipped them to go with the scriptures that were in the surrounding nations through the synagogue system, he then anoints them and commissions them to then go. He says, you need this tool, this great tool of understanding how I'm in the Old Testament scriptures. And not only do you need this tool, you still need one more. He said to them in verse 46, thus it is written, that is, it's in the scriptures, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. In Acts 1, we see a similar passage. Luke repeats himself and expands it. He says that you will, he, he, Luke tells us that Jesus told the disciples that you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, the surrounding regions around Jerusalem, even to the utmost ends of the earth. He, he's describing that they're going to move from Jerusalem into ever increasingly large concentric circles. They're gonna be pushed out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and then there's gonna be an oppression which pushes them out into the nations. This is exactly what we see if we read the book of Acts. Acts is the history of the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that the gospel is going to go to all the nations. So therefore, the certainty of the gospel going to the nations is grounded in the very same promise as Christ's death and resurrection. This has massive implications for how we think about the future. The greatest temptation for Christians in America today is not pornography, alcoholism, or even political idolatry, although that probably is the second most dangerous temptation. The chief and most clear dangerous temptation for Christians in America is to begin to perceive the kingdom of God's progress through history in light of their narrow cultural experience. That is to say, you turn on the news, you see things are getting really bad, and then you make the leap from there. You hear some report out of Barna or Pew or whoever, some research journal, that 89,000% of children growing up in the church today are leaving the faith, that they're all gone, they're all, they're all dead, they're all hopeless. And then from there to make the leap of, well, this is it, the final generation, you know, we're, we're on the last frontier of the church. Everything's getting really bad. Brothers and sisters, Christ tells us that the gospel being proclaimed in all the nations is in the same source, that, that event, that is told forth in the exact same source as the source which said that Christ would suffer and be raised from the dead. There is no more surety given to that prospect of the nations hearing the gospel than there was given to Christ's suffering and being raised from the dead. Therefore, as a Christian, if you believe that Christ suffered and was raised from the dead, you have the exact same surety as the gospel being presented to every nation. And when he says the gospel or the repentance from the forgiveness of sins being proclaimed in every nation, it necessarily implies that there will be some fruit gathered from that event. The word of God does not go forth without producing its intended effect. And so if the gospel is going to go forth to every nation, we likewise should expect there will be fruit in every nation. This is what John sees by the Spirit in Revelation 4 and 5, a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. At the time that John experienced this, it was probably anywhere from 62 to 65 AD. 
John did not have an experience at that time which was reality on the ground. He sees in heaven, I believe into the future in heaven or into a spiritual understanding of what heaven is like. And he sees a great multitude surrounding the lamb. That great multitude is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nations. In 62 to 65 AD, the gospel did not make it to the North American continent or the South American continent. So, so what do we mean when we say the gospel is going to go to every nation? I mean every single place that there are distinct people groups, that there are distinct nations which could be called nations or even have some semblance of nationhood, they will hear the gospel and Christ will have his glory in their people. That is what I believe John is telling us in Revelation 4 and 5 when he sees included in the multitude those from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ will have his reward. Christ's gospel will be proclaimed and will bear fruit just as the Holy Spirit has promised it. And though he had opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and though he had given them a commission, something more is needed. He then tells them to wait for something. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. That word witnesses is the same word as martyr. That's where we get that word from. It's they are going to pay with their lives for the truth of this event, that Christ is truly the king of all. In verse 49, he says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Therefore, Christ's authority is seen clearly. Look at this. He says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Jesus Christ is seen in this phrase as fully divine. Why do we see him as fully divine in this phrase? Because he is able to execute the promise of the Father. If you talk about things in law, there's, you write a will, but you're, let's say you get put into a coma and there's no chance for you to recover from that coma. You're essentially dead. What takes place at that moment? Then someone who has what's called the power of attorney, who you've delegated as a representative, your lawyer usually, or upon your death, if you haven't appointed a lawyer, someone from the government, they will execute your will because they have the delegated authority to do so. And they begin to distribute the funds and the lands and all the various debts as well to your children. <laughs> so watch out for that, but that's, that's a different topic. The point is that, that that one who has the power of attorney is acting in your stead because you are not there to act. What Jesus is saying is, I have the right and authority and power to command the spirit to come upon my saints. And that is not my own initiative, but rather I am doing the will of the Father. You see, this is not just a glorious proof of the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three co-equal persons, equal in glory and majesty, but also it's a wonderful proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ and his authority as the mediator between God and man, that he should be able to take up the will of the Father and do it and and in no way is infringing upon the Father's right or role, is absolutely beautiful and wonderful. He does not merely foretell that Pentecost will happen, but he says that he himself will perform it. I am sending the promise. Seeing how important the Spirit is, even to the apostles' mission, ought we not likewise uh, to treat it as such? 
Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift you could ever have. It is not a different gift than salvation. It it attends to that gift. It is a further uh, improvement upon that condition. But it is the most wonderful aspect or resource of the Christian faith. They were not able to do their mission until they were anointed with power, even though he had just given them complete access to all of the scriptures. He, he gave them access to the scriptures. He opened their mind and said, but wait a second, don't go yet. Wait until you are anointed with power. So moving on to see Christ as the head of Jew and Gentile. Jesus is likewise seen, just as he is seen as mediator, he is also seen as the head or the chief of the Jew and Gentile church together as one people. In Ephesians 2, outside of our reading today, but very much in the scope of Paul's letter of Ephesians 1, Paul says that he abolished the two by removing the ordinances of commandments that kept them separate, he tore down the dividing wall and made them into one new people, replacing the two or setting aside the two. That's why I say they are formerly, formerly Jew and formerly Gentile. They are not Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. We don't call ourselves, you know, I'm, a, I'm an American Germanic Christian and you're an American Irish Christian and you're an Korean Christian no, they, they have become one new people group. They have become a new identity, namely the church of Jesus. And we see this actually not even in Ephesians 1 necessarily, but here in Luke 24, he says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. As true disciples of God's anointed, that is the Messiah, the Christ, all those terms, anointed Messiah and Christ are all the same thing. He's the one who's been anointed to sit on the throne of his father, David, fulfilling the great promise given in 2 Samuel 7 by God to the King David, saying, you will not lack a man on the throne. Because the disciples knew who Christ was, knew that he was the anointed one fulfilling the promise of the father, they didn't start a new religion they went back to the temple and continued to bless God. You see, Christianity is not a separate religion from what the patriarchs and the Israelites who were faithful believed. It is not a separate religion at all. It is merely an understanding of the manifestation and the realization of the promises of God, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who Yahweh promised. Yahweh kept his promise, and therefore they worshiped God. Paul likewise, moving on to Ephesians 1, Paul likewise thanks God that he has brought these two different people groups together. Now, this is a little bit of the backstory of Ephesians 1. It doesn't say this in Ephesians 1, but this is the context based on Acts 19. Paul thanks God for the faith of the Ephesian church, and they were a community made up of formerly Jewish and formerly Gentile people, that they have become united in Christ. Ephesians 2.15 clearly says that they've been one new person setting, setting aside the two. Ephesians 1.15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you 
the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You see how this is exactly mirroring what's just taken place in Luke 24? Luke 24, Jesus says, you're to proclaim forgiveness of sins, not to Jerusalem alone, but to all the nations. And then he goes on and says, but wait for the spirit. Paul, therefore, comes to this church, as we're gonna see in very brief detail, that he had already ministered to in Acts 19 when he came to the city of Ephesus, and he says, I thank God that you've become Christians. I thank God that you have faith, but oh, that you would have more and more the gift of the Spirit. He says, you have some unity, but I want to build into that unity. I want to expand upon and make that unity more fruitful that God would give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. When he went to the city of Ephesus, Paul had met some disciples who had not yet been baptized in the Spirit. In Acts 19, the very first thing he does is he finds 12 disciples of Christ who had heard of the baptism of repentance through water. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't even know about the Spirit. We didn't even know he existed. They then said, you know, they, he then said, what, are, what were you then baptized into? We were baptized with water for repentance. He goes on to explain the necessity of the Spirit. They get baptized in the Spirit. And then from there, Paul begins to go to the synagogue. He spends about three months until they kick him out. And then he goes to the Hall of the Greeks. You see, Paul was executing the gospel, first going to the household of faith. They, as Jews, as the ones who had the, the ancestral right of the promises and the covenant inheritance, he goes to them first. And when they don't receive it fully, he then turns to the Greeks. But thanks be to God, there was fruit from both camps and they became a new people in the church of God. Paul's desire, therefore, is to build on that unity and for them to have a knowledge of the manifold power of God, which we see here in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as the forerunner of his saints, he first tastes death and then is exalted by the Father's power. A few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as the one who is the shepherd of the sheep. And we saw how Jesus told in John 10 that the shepherd goes before the flock. He goes before the flock, placing himself between the danger and the flock. We saw that that was an aspect of his role, his ministry as the forerunner of the saints. But he does not just taste death on behalf of the saints first, he also experiences exaltation and glorification on behalf of the saints first. Verse 19, Paul desires that they would have the spirit so that they could know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, the Father's power, towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is kind of difficult at first to parse what is Paul saying. He's saying, I wish, I remember you in my prayers, hoping for, asking for, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Another clause, another clause, another clause. And then it comes here. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? What type of power? How was that power displayed? That power was displayed when he worked it in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seat him at the right hand. Paul desires that by the Spirit, these Ephesian Christians would begin to understand the great power that the Father has towards them 
And what is a greater demonstration of power than power that is executed? In physics and in chemistry, you've got a difference between kinetic energy, energy in motion, and potential energy. You've got energy in a battery. What do you have energy when the application is on or the vacuum is on? You've got energy in motion. You see, Paul is not just saying God has all power. He's saying God has all power towards those who believe. And guess what? It's the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the very same power that rose him through the heavens to the right hand. That is the sort of power that is towards those who believe. God demonstrated it by raising him from the dead and sitting him at the right hand. That is how Christ is the forerunner. He's the forerunner in that he experiences the power of God on behalf of his people. That power of God was necessary to experience, and it is just as sure as it was applied to him, it will be applied to you. That's how Paul reasons in 1 Corinthians 15. Just as we've borne the image of the earthly man, that is, Adam, so also we will bear the image of the heavenly man. We will be raised from the dead. We will receive glorified bodies. We will spend eternity with God. That is what Paul is arguing for in 1 Corinthians 15, that just as this power has been applied to Christ as the forerunner, so also it will be applied to all of Christ's saints. Not only is Christ the forerunner, he's also the mediator in that he addresses the Father on behalf of his saints. Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34 both describe Jesus Christ in his mediatorial office that he is petitioning the Father on behalf of the saints. And that petition is not done with some vague knowledge of what it's like to be men or mankind with a pristine and clear knowledge. That is, as Christ ascends to the heavenlies, he retains his physical frame forever. That frame is glorified, but it is still human. And as such, he bears the marks of wrath. We saw in our song today that, that uh, there's in, in that song that we sang, it mentions that the angels are not able to perceive or look upon the scars of the wounded lamb. That's what John sees again in Revelation 4 and 5, a lamb as if slain. That after the resurrection, Jesus tells Thomas, Thomas, do not disbelieve any longer, but believe. Place your hands in the holes and place your hand in my side. That even though Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, he still has intimate knowledge, adequate, wonderfully sufficient knowledge to be able to petition the Father for he can sympathize with you. His retaining or his keeping of his physical frame is vitally important. It was not a mere shadow, but it was God stepping down in the flesh and uniting himself forever with mankind. That is what your savior is like. But further, his presence at the father's side gives us hope that where he is, we shall also be. That is exactly why he goes to the Father's right hand. We saw this last week. He said, I'm ascending to the Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Why? Because they should naturally expect that where their Messiah is, they will be with him. Christ sits therefore at the right hand and he rules and reigns on the throne of God as the God-man. Daniel 7 tells us this plainly, and Jesus uses Daniel 7 in Mark 14. At his trial, they asked him if he was the Christ, if he was the Messiah, and he responded by saying, not only that, 
I'm not only the Messiah, but I have authority to go and you will see me, the son of man, at the right hand of power. He says, I'm not only the king of the Jews, I'm not only gonna fulfill the great promise of God to David, I'm also, after you kill me, I'm going to the Father and I'm going to stand there forever. Verse 20, that power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. I think Paul is actually not speaking about our age and the future. I think he's speaking about the Jewish age which was at a close and the age to come which was the church. That is to say, of course there's not gonna be a name above Christ after the second coming. I don't think he has that in mind. I think what he's saying is that Christ, having taken his place at the right hand, is already the king, even though there's this other temple still in existence. He's gonna tear it down because he's building a new temple in his people. First Peter tells us clearly, you're being built as living stones. Why is it important to understand that the temple has to be torn down because there's this new king? It's because the temple and David's palace were one complex. They were one territory. They, they had a common land. The point is this, that Christ ascends to the throne and has rule over everything. Is, is President Trump the leader of the free world? Christians should never utter this phrase. First of all, there is only one free world. That free world is the free world of the saints of the kingdom of God as they execute the will of Christ through their life being anointed by the spirit to do so. But President Trump is not the leader of the free world. All respect due to the office of the presidency. There was made mention earlier today of Bush, Obama, or Trump. I personally haven't liked any of the presidents ever. Um, I'm just kidding. But... But the point is that there is no free world in a political sense unless that country or nation or people subjects itself to the law of God. We do not have a free world in this country. We have 50 years of the murder of children in this country. We are Babylon. There is no free world here. Nevertheless, the free world is being made manifest and Christ already has authority over every king, over every tyrant that would try to raise his fist against the Christ. That's what Psalm 2 says, that the kings of the earth, they take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, that word is Messiah, Christ, saying, let us tear off the bindings of his fetters. Let us cast down his rule. And then the psalmist goes on to say, "Take, be wise, O kings of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you be consumed in his wrath. The Psalm 2 is talking about that time where the anointed one has the rod of iron, which he begins to rule with. That takes place here, as Paul tells us, that he has all rule and all authority. So if Christ has all rule now, then why is there still evil in the world? Very clearly, there can be a prisoner or a robber, a thief inside a kingdom of a king. That does not mean the king is not the king. It just means that there are little robbers and thieves running around outside of his authority and law. They are still in the realm of his authority and he will surely as a righteous king track them down. The point is this, that Paul is saying, even though Caesar is on the throne in Rome, be wise, Ephesian Christians, Christ has all rule and all authority and all power. Somebody once asked me whether I thought like Hillary or, or Trump would win. And uh, I said, I don't care. And the reason I don't care is, 
I mean, I care for a little bit, but, but <laughs> I don't care long-term. I don't care 500 years from now, they will be a footnote in history. They will be a picture on Wikipedia, whatever, if, if that even exists 500 years from now. The point is that Christ is ruling and reigning, not just in time, not just over certain nations. He's ruling and reigning over millennia. He is executing his will. He is bringing about repentance in all the nations. It doesn't look like that in America now. It looked like that two or 300 years ago, a little bit more than it does today. But if you look at history in 500-year chunks, you see a small, tiny religion going on in the city of Jerusalem, and then it takes over the planet in 2,000 years. And I believe that's going to still continue to happen. Nevertheless, Christ is going to reign until his victory is complete against all of his enemies. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. He doesn't come off of the throne to execute his kingdom. He comes off the throne when his kingdom is mature. Once he has defeated all of his enemies, the last enemy to be defeated is death. He's ruling and reigning over nations. He's ruling and reigning over sin. He's ruling and reigning over everything. Now, does this mean all Christians will be, or all people of the world will become Christians? I don't think so. But I do think it is clear that Christ's reign will have a visible, manifest, real presence in all places. This is, this is why Christians can have great hope. But it's important to note that Christ's reign does not exist mysteriously. It's not a mystical reign. It is not a reign which is kind of done by some abstract, unseeable force. And it is not even done by the Holy Spirit himself alone. But rather, as Paul says, Christ's reign is accomplished by putting his enemies under his feet. And then he goes on in the very same verse to say that Christ was given to the church as the head and the church is supposed to be the body. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Notice it does not say that he gave Christ as head over all things in the church. So Christ is not just the Lord over the church. He is not just the Lord over those who have bowed the knee by grace. He is Lord over all things. And that Lord, the Lord over all things, has been given as the head to the church. It does not mean that God allowed Christ to be the head over all things in the church. Very important distinction with massive implications. He is head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What is the point? What's my whole goal and aim? My whole goal and aim today is that by understanding what took place through the historical fact of Christ's ascension from this earth to the right hand of power, that you would begin to see all of your life encompassing living out the reign of Christ. That you would begin to see your remaining indwelling sin as treasonous behavior against the king. That treasonous behavior which can be pardoned for we have a gracious king. But nevertheless, it's treasonous still. That his reign is not just to take place over your heart or over your family's life, although it should take place and it should be made clear and manifest, but it also is over the church and it's also supposed to be over the society and it's supposed to also be all over the government, over all the government. The point is this, that as Christians, 
we ought to reject the voices of the enemy which attempt to, per, to persuade us to not work for the future. Everything in life which comes about as a manifestation of the grace of God or a realization of God's grace comes about by people who believe in the promise. That is always how it has been in the scriptures. Abraham believed in the promise, therefore he left the Ur of the Chaldeans to go find a promised land. That is what it takes today. We do not have a promised land yet. In some sense it's here, but in a real sense it's still coming. And therefore, we have to believe in the promise. We have to be willing to sow our lives into the future by living sacrificially for Christ and for his kingdom. But you cannot, you will not do that unless you know for sure that it will bear fruit. At, in, at a heart level, if you're not convinced that radical, sacrificial repentance and giving of money and giving of time and giving of your skills and your talents if you do not understand that Christ is reigning now and will cause his people to bear fruit, then you cannot radically give up your life, right? Even Christ himself, he despised the shame of the cross. He endured it, how? For the joy that was set before him. Unless you're radically convinced that Christ is ruling and reigning and will cause his gospel to have fruit in all places, in all people throughout time, then you will not be enabled to lay down your life. No matter how hard you resolve to turn over a new leaf or how hard you resolve to go hard after God, unless you're thoroughly convinced that Christ is reigning, you cannot lay down your life for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would deliver us from the temptation of pessimism for the future. Lord, we rightly know and do not dismiss at all the terrible barometers and, and, and thermometer signs of our current culture's rebellion against you. Lord, we know that one day you will judge this country for her manifold sins, whether at the last day or some time before that. But at the same time, Lord, allow us to sow our lives into the future. Give us, God, grace to, as Paul says, work harder than any of them that we would be enabled by a pure and clear vision of your son's power at the right hand, that we would see that and that we would trust in that and that we would cling to the promise that he will bring about an announcement of the repentance for sins in all nations. God, we ask that you would de deliver us and liberate us from doctrines of the evil one which would keep us focused upon ourselves or focused on how bad things are getting or focused on how ineffective we will be when we share the gospel, but rather, Lord, that you would allow us at all moments, at all times, to remember your son's ascension and to live from that reality. In Jesus' mighty name.